Good morning. Well, as always, it is my pleasure and a privilege to open up God's Word with you today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and take those out and open them up with me to the book of Hebrews, of course, as we continue in our series, Christ, Our Anchor. We're going to be wrapping up the last few verses there in chapter 4, specifically verses 14 through 16. So that's where we're headed, Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16. And as you're finding your way there, I want to begin by asking some questions that require some honest introspection. Have you ever felt like God let you down? Maybe something happened in your life that was exactly the opposite of what you had been praying for. Maybe you've felt like that for a long time, that that God's let you down because maybe you were born into extremely difficult circumstances. You've felt that the deck has always been stacked against you. Or maybe you're one who you felt like God was on your side for a long time and then tragedy struck. Have you ever wondered, how could God let something like this happen? Does he even care? Surely if he cared, he would do something, right? If Christ made peace by the blood of his cross, then why am I not experiencing peace? Our attitude can be like that of the disciples in the boat in the midst of the storm. Teacher, don't you care? Don't you care if we drown? Those guys had the creator of the universe in their boat, and they doubted his care. So what does that say about our hearts? How quick we are to waver, to waver in our faith when the storm winds blow. The reality is that this life we live is not without trial, hardship. And for some of us, the situations are agonizing, truly agonizing. And we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, tempted to doubt if he cares, and in the darkest of places, the temptation is strongest, and our hearts ask, God, do you really care about me? And can you actually help? The Bible and our text today answers these questions with a resounding yes. Yes. God can and does help. We can have hope. He does care. We can have hope because we have hope in the one who can and does calm the storm, who even the winds and the waves obey. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And he is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. We're going to learn in our text today that even though Jesus is transcendent and superior, that does not mean he is abstract, far removed from us, or uncaring. No, in fact, in Christ, we are welcomed 
into intimate fellowship and life with the living God. And in this relationship with him, we are invited to draw near, to drink deep of the mercy and grace that he provides for everyday life. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sound good? I'm going to pray, ask God's help for our time, and then we'll read the text together. But first, let's pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pause now before we enter into your word to thank you for it. We thank you for the Bible. Thank you for showing us what you are like in it revealing yourself to us. And that is our prayer this morning, that you would do just that. Reveal yourself anew to us this morning from our text. Would you show us what you are like and plant that truth deep in us and help us to appreciate and wonder at who you are. We know we need your help for this, so we ask for soft hearts to hear your truth. We ask for your help in all these things in the name of Jesus, of course. Through the Spirit. Amen. All right, you got your Bibles? Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16 is our text proper as we discuss this concept of the amazing mercy of an understanding high priest. But I want to do something a little different for our reading of the word this morning. We're going to jump backwards in our text because... This is not the first time the writer has introduced this topic. It's actually in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to read those two verses there, and then we're going to hop back over to our text today in chapter 4. So I'll lead us. We're going to start in chapter 2. So flip over there. Chapter 2, verse 17. This is God's word. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now we go over to chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, there's a lot in there. I hope just from the reading of the word that you're already comforted. But there's a lot to unpack. Where to begin? We are going to begin with the first imperative that we find, the first call to action in our text. And that's at the end of verse 14. We find, let us hold fast our confession. There's a call to action. There's another call to action, not that unsimilar, in verse 16. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. We have two calls to actions, but we're going to begin 
with our first one here in verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. Now this should already sound familiar to you as a reader of this letter because you've heard this same call already earlier in the letter. In fact, this has been the primary message, the primary thrust of the letter up to this point. That is that we cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. In the opening words, if you can think back of the letter, the, the writer basically says, God has spoken. God has spoken. And because he has spoken, we better listen up. And in these last days, he has not spoken to us through mere angels or prophets. He has spoken to us through the divine son, far greater than angels, far greater than Moses or Aaron or Joshua. No, Jesus is the very radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature who upholds the universe by the power of his word. And if he speaks, we better listen. So chapter 2, verse 1, we have the call that we must pay attention, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. Lest we neglect such a great salvation. May that never be. No. Chapter 3, verse 1, instead, consider Jesus Consider Jesus. And a few verses later in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 6. Let's read that together. Very similar language to our text today. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Very similar language to our text. The same imperative is implied. We should hold fast, hold fast, persevere in the faith. Again, in chapter 3, verse 14, not unsimilar, after an exposition on the danger of unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So you're hearing that familiar language, that same call. And yet again, not unsimilar. Chapter 4, verse 11, as we saw last week, it comes to God's promise of rest. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here's the opposite of what happens when you hold fast. The opposite of that is falling by the same sort of disobedience. What kind of disobedience are we talking about here? Hard hearts of unbelief. The writer's message could not be more clear. God has spoken through his son in word and deed. Do not harden your hearts. Do not drift away. Do not neglect such a great salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. No, pay closer attention. Hold fast our confidence. Hold fast our boasting and hope. Hold fast our confession. Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus, cling to Jesus. So that's been the writer's message up to this point. But the book of Hebrews is it's not a list of do's and don'ts. The writer's much less interested in telling his readers what they should do 
but why you should do it. Did you know the power of that one word, why? I'll tell you, if you're a parent, you know it well. Time to go to school, buddy. Time to clean up. Why? Because we need to go to school. Why? Because we need to learn. Why? So you can stop asking me that question. They don't tell you when you become a parent, you signed up for pop quizzes on the cause or meaning of all of life. Anytime you get pop quiz. The profound question, why? It's asked at the heart of every human being. Why go on? What is the point? Is it all worth it? The writer of Hebrews aims to answer those questions. And notice his approach in doing so. He points them to Christ. Look at the review section on your study notes there. This letter is an exposition of Jesus the Christ. His offices, his promises, his redeeming work is the why we can joyfully endure. Because yes, the best possible way to call people to endure, the reason why we can endure in faith is because of Jesus. So the writer is giving us a bigger and clearer picture of Jesus because he is our why. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the reason. So in our text, the writer gives a reason, a reason to endure, a reason to hold fast to our confession. Why can we do so? Because of the office that Jesus holds as our great high priest. Let's read verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Because of that, let us hold fast our confession. There's a lot to unpack just in this verse, verse 14. And the writer is just beginning to expand on the idea of what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. And if if you peek ahead to the verses and chapters ahead in this book, you're going to find that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this topic. Jesus, the very Son of God, is our great high priest. This is cause for great rejoicing. But why it's cause for great rejoicing is not exactly as clear to us immediately as it would have been to the original audience who read and heard those words. And the reason for that is because Unlike the original first century audience, uh, most of us, I would probably say all of us, uh, did not grow up nor are we readily surrounded by Hebrew traditions and practices. Uh, The original audience was extremely familiar with the Old Covenant, institutions like the Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrificial systems. They understood what a high priest was. They understood all these things because they lived in it. We don't. So it's important for us, in order to understand the significance of who Jesus is as our high priest, we need to understand the significance of the office of high priest itself. What is a high priest? What does a high priest do? So that's what we're going to take a look at. Very important for us to understand, because as I said, in the chapters and verses ahead, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. The reason we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this 
because this is something worth dwelling on. It's something worth sitting in, soaking up, and resting in forever that Jesus is our great high priest. So let's get into it. What is the office of a high priest? And again, the writer assumes that his readers, we, have a good understanding of the old covenant, what's called the old covenant. That is how God used to, as in past tense, how he used to relate with his people, what we call the old covenant. And this implies there is a new covenant, and there is a new way in which God relates with his people. and That is through Jesus Christ. And all this, whether we're talking about the old covenant or the new covenant, it revolves around one thing, our common problem, which prevents us from dwelling with God, our sin problem. God cannot, because he is holy, and does not, because he is holy, commune with sin. So, when sin first entered the world long ago in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, They walked with God in fellowship. But when they sinned in the garden, they were thrown out of the garden because of their sin. They were separated from fellowship with God. Sin separates us from God. But amazingly, in his mercy and grace, God did not immediately return Adam and Eve to the dust from which they came. He did not smite them down immediately on the spot. He would have been just in doing so. He did not leave them alone in the dust, wanting nothing to do with them ever again. He would have been just in doing so. No, he he clothed them. He clothed them, and he made a way for them to continue relating with him. But there's something even greater. Incredibly, as he is pronouncing judgment on them for their sin, he includes a promise of a future redemption. He promises that one day he's going to restore them to full fellowship with him again. He's going to redeem them. And remarkably, he promises to do so through a human being, a male descendant of the woman, Of course, we know on this side of history, that person is the God-man, no ordinary human. Jesus, the very Son of God, is the one who will accomplish this redemption in finality. But still, until that Redeemer would come, God made a temporary way of dealing with the problem of sin, a temporary way that he could still relate with sinners as a holy God. That is what we call the Old Covenant. Uh, And I share all this because the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast the Old Covenant with the New Covenant a lot. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to spend some time talking about this. And so what that means is it's important for us to have a pretty good grasp on what the Old Covenant was all about. That way we're able to understand better how the writer is going to be contrasting this Old Covenant with the new. Now, we don't have time today to spend all our time in the Old Covenant and cover every detail and facet, but for our purposes, let's briefly talk about 
three important old covenant concepts. I call them on your study sheet, three shadows of redemption, because all three point forward to, by design, the greater redemption to come. They point forward to the great redeemer. They point forward to Jesus. So the first one, the tabernacle, a fun word to say, tabernacle. Remember, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden, kicked out of fellowship with God. Well, the tabernacle was an amazing grace because it was the way in which God made it possible to still dwell among his people, still dwell with sinners and relate with them. Among the tents of the people, God made his tent. It was called the tabernacle. Sounds wonderful, right? God's still residing with his people, but there's a catch. This was far different from the fellowship that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden. No, because of sin, there was still a necessary separation between the holy God and sinners. The presence of God was kept separate from the people by a series of dividing barriers. The tabernacle was made up of three sections. You had the outer court. You had the tent itself. Inside that tent were the other two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. Outer court, holy place, holy of holies. And the tents of the people themselves, where they lived, was outside of the tabernacle altogether. So you can see the separation. Then you had the outer court, which was the closest the common people could get to the presence of God, but still technically outside of the tabernacle proper the tent where God dwelt. Only certain God-appointed individuals were allowed inside that tent. And even then, inside that tent, there's still another dividing barrier, a curtain, a veil, that separates the holy place, still outside of God's presence, from the holy of holies, where God actually dwelt. No one was allowed inside that holy of holies except on one day out of the year, one man was allowed inside. The great, sorry, excuse me, the high priest. So that leads us to the Levitical priesthood. So the Levites were a tribe in Israel, and from among that tribe, the Levites, God appointed, he targeted specific men to be his representatives. These people were called priests. They were mediators between the people and God, almost like a defense lawyer, right? A defense lawyer's primary duty is to intercede, to plea before the judge. And these priests were interceding on behalf of the people. They plead before the judge of all things to forgive the people from their sin. Among these priests, of course, was the head representative, the lead intercessor, the high priest. And his primary duty, as mentioned before, was on that one specific day, that one day out of the year, it's called the Day of Atonement. He was allowed inside to pass through the curtain and into the presence of God for a very specific purpose, to make atonement for all the sins of all the people for the entire last calendar year. 
But that leads us to the next shadow, the sacrificial system. Because the high priest could not simply boldly just walk in through that curtain and ask God for forgiveness. No. This is a holy God we're dealing with. This is sin we are dealing with. The penalty of sin is death. So all who sin are under the penalty of death. But in his grace, God gave the sacrificial system. That is, he allowed a sacrifice, the bloodshed of an animal, to temporarily atone for sin, to temporarily cover sin. So these priests were the ones that performed these sacrifices. And they performed the sacrifices in the outer court daily, where all the people could see, at least if they were paying attention, This was a daily reminder by seeing blood shed that sin is costly. The cost of sin is nothing less than death. And bloodshed is required by God's design to make atonement for sin. As the writer We'll say in Hebrews chapter 9, looking back to God's institution of the sacrificial system in Leviticus, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness from sin. And so the high priest, in order to enter into God's presence, had to make sacrifice first for himself, for his own sins, bloodshed required, and then bloodshed for the sins of all the people and all their sins. This necessary for him to pass through the outer court, the Holy of Holies, and then through the veil into the presence of God. Okay, now important to remember in all these institutions that they are just that institutions, instituted by God. They were not. Ideas that man somehow randomly thought up and started practicing. No, God designed and appointed them, and his intention in doing so was grace. But they were temporary means of grace. By design, temporary. By design, to point forward to the coming redemption, to the coming redeemer, to the new covenant. Okay, let's tie that up. Put that in our pocket. That's our mini crash course on the old covenant. All right. So now that we have that in our pocket, we can better approach our text. But let's take a step back and remember where we find ourselves in our text here. The writer has given us another call to persevere, right? End of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. So there's the call. Persevere in the faith. And then he gives us a reason to persevere. The beginning of verse 14. Why persevere? Because we have a great high priest. He is our reason. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Now, this is not the first call to persevere, as we've mentioned. Nor is it the first reason given to persevere. We're going to see that in our text, the writer continues this theme of Christ's superiority. Which, is, which he already began in the beginning. Jesus is better than angels, superior to angels. He's more faithful than Moses. He offers a better rest than Joshua. And now he is a better high priest than Aaron. He is 
the great high priest. He is not a high priest. He is the great high priest. And again, we're going to be unpacking that a lot in the coming weeks. But for our purposes today, here's two major aspects. Two aspects to Christ's greater priesthood. The first is this. The finished work of atonement. The finished work of atonement. Let's read verse 14 again. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Stop. What does it mean that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens? You note the very spatial language here. Passing through the heavens. Remember to the high priests of old who passed through the outer court and into the holy place and then passed through the veil into the holy of holies. Well, the greater high priest passes through the heavens themselves. Chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice the spatial language again. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But that's not the full quote. The full quote in chapter 1, verse 3 is, after making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, as our great high priest, passed through the heavens to make purification for our sin, to atone for our sin, to cover our sin. And he was able to do so by virtue of his perfect sacrifice. In the same way the high priests of old had to make a sacrifice to pass through, Jesus needed a sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice. The spotless lamb whose perfect righteousness allows him to enter into the holy of holies, to enter into the presence of God. It is his blood, the blood of Jesus that secures our forgiveness. And Jesus said, as he bled on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. The work of atonement is done. There is no longer any need for sacrifices or bloodshed. The blood of Jesus is sufficient and final. Soon after Jesus uttered those words and died, the veil in the temple the tabernacle of old, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the presence of God from sinful man was torn in two. The curtain symbolizing separation between a holy God and sinners. It didn't just spontaneously combust. No, God tore it from top to bottom. Jesus, by his death on the cross, passed through the heavens and destroyed the curtain beckoning all who would believe in him to come, come and live in the presence of God. His finished work of atonement opens up access for sinners to eternal communion, eternal life with our holy God. And that gift, eternal direct fellowship with God, leads us to our second aspect of Christ's high priestly role. That is his tender ministry of intercession. 
Look at verse 15 together. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We do not have fellowship with an abstract God who has no knowledge or understanding of what it means to be human. Our God is not unaware of the enticing nature of sin and the pleasure it appears to promise. No, he understands. He understands what it means to be tempted because he himself was tempted in every respect. In every way that we have been tempted, our Lord and Savior has been tempted just the same. There is not a temptation that we can feel that our Lord did not endure. No, our Lord understands because our Lord has been there. He's been there. Sometimes we can overemphasize the divine nature of Christ in a way that we diminish his humanity. We can be guilty of thinking that because Jesus was fully God on earth, that, that sure, he, he was tempted, but, but because he was God, it wasn't really tempted, tempting for him. He, he didn't really feel the draw of temptation. Like, when he was tempted, he probably just rolled his eyes and said, yeah, nice try, Satan, like, that was easy. Now, if we, if we think like this, we forget the blood drops of sweat that lay on the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus lay prostrate on the ground, crying out to the Father and pleading with his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into what? Temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And his next words are telling, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. Yes, Jesus, in every respect, understands human weakness because he experienced that same human weakness in his own human flesh. But, unlike us, the writer of Hebrews is very clear that Jesus never sinned. Though he was faced with all manner of temptation, he never gave in to it. He always obeyed. And here's what is amazing. That in all his perfection, having remained perfectly righteous through all temptation, Jesus, the spotless God-man, does not stand in the presence of God and laugh at our pathetic inability to obey, nor does he shake his head in disgust at our weakness. No, our victorious high priest sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with us. He is deeply compassionate towards us. He cares about us, and he understands our struggle, our daily struggle with a broken, sinful world. Jesus understands. On earth, Jesus gave us a, a precious insight into the tender heart of God. Isaiah says, 
He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And when we ponder Jesus being tempted, I think we tend to think about the obvious bad stuff like lying or stealing, something like that. Have you considered that Jesus was tempted to despair? When his friend Lazarus died, the text says that Jesus wept. He wept. Now he surely knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why did he why did he weep? He felt the pain. Jesus felt the pain. The same pain that you and I feel in the sorrow of death. And the brokenness of this sinful world. Jesus has been there. He understands what it's like. His heart is tender. And so is his care. And that is good news. That Jesus' sympathy is not removed from action. No, because his heart is tender, his care is tender as well. Because our great high priest is understanding in our weakness, he offers care to help in our weakness. This leads us to our next verse and our next heading, which is the way to persevere. How can we persevere in our faith? How can we hold fast to our confession? The reason to persevere is because we have a great high priest who makes atonement for our sin and understands our weakness. And because of that, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The way to persevere in faith is to lean into the faithful one, to draw near to the throne that dispenses grace. This is a stunning reversal from the way things used to be, from the days of old, of that old tabernacle, the strict necessary separation between a holy God and sinners. I put on your study sheet that because of Christ's high priestly work, because he passed through the heavens, sinners are no longer told to keep their distance, but to draw near, to come and live in the presence of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they suddenly felt shame in their nakedness, which they didn't have before. And when they heard God walking in the garden, they hid themselves. They ran away from the God they previously enjoyed unbridled and unashamed fellowship with. Similarly, if we are apart from Christ, we should hear the words of verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. And they should make us shudder. And no creature, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But if we put our faith in Jesus, We need not shrink back from the throne of judgment and fear and shame, naked and exposed in our sin. No. In Jesus, 
we come joyfully and boldly to the throne of grace, to the very presence of God as sinners, because we are fully clothed in a righteousness that is not our own, in the righteousness of our perfect Savior. And because of that, we receive mercy, forgiveness from our sin. Forgiveness, mercy. We draw near. Two riches are listed for those who draw near. First and foremost, mercy. Mercy, forgiveness for sin. And secondly, grace to go on. We do not only receive merciful salvation from sin and death, but gracious provision of help in the here and now. We must draw near the hard times, in those dark places when we're tempted to despair. Draw near to the grace that we need to believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Two riches available. Mercy and grace. We can draw near with confidence. I put on your study sheet there that confidence is not a denial of danger or hardship but a firm expectation that God will, he will take care of us. It made me think of the scene that I think we've all witnessed before. When you have a young child who's at the top of the staircase or up someplace high, and they leap out into the hands and the arms of their parent, whoever's there. Because they have absolutely no doubt. They don't even have a concept in their mind that that person is going to drop them. They have full confidence, no doubt, in their care. We need that confidence as well. It's available to us because of our great high priest. At the heart of every temptation is a battle for your confidence. And we know that we have a great tendency to put our confidence in the wrong things, don't we? Whether it be ourselves, whether it be in someone else, in money, earthly pleasures, whatever it might be, the Bible says there's only one place to put our trust, only one place to put our confidence, in the only one who will never let us down, who will always catch us and hold us, who never leaves us or forsakes, forsakes us, but who is always with us, the one who has passed through the heavens before us, who makes atonement through his blood, the one who was tempted in every respect as we are, but remained without sin. No, the perfect one, the one who can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine, and the one who bids us to confidently draw near, to receive mercy and grace in all our need. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. and He bids you today. Draw near, draw near, and receive mercy. And if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. I've asked Luke to come up and lead us in a song together. As he comes up, would you stand? We're going to sing this together. A song of response, a chance for us to practice what we're called to in this passion in this passage, that we would hold fast 
our confession by drawing near to the throne of grace. You're going to hear a repeated line in this song about what you hold to. Let us declare together, to this we hold, our hope is only Jesus. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine Yet not I, but through Christ in me The night is dark, but I am not forsaken For by my side the Savior He will stay I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley He will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. And to this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for He has said that He will bring me home. And day by day, I know He will renew me, until I stand with joy before the throne. And to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. And all the 
to Him. When the race is complete, till my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for our great gift in our Redeemer. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our great high priest who has passed through the heavens before us. Thank you that we can with confidence draw near to you. And how thankful we are for the mercy and grace you provide. Help us to cling to Jesus as we do leave this place and go and grapple with the hard realities that await us. Help us to cling to Jesus. We thank you for the grace we need to do so. We pray in Jesus' name, through the Spirit. Amen. God be with you as you go.